Welcome to the Valley View Friends Church Podcast. I'm Pastor Josh. Thank you for tuning in. I'm so glad to share the next few minutes with you today. I'm all about you thriving in life and growing in your relationship with Jesus. At Valley View Friends Church, we like to say that we are learning how to live as God's people. And we do that by reaching and restoring hearts and homes with Jesus. Today, we continue our series from the teaching of Jesus that we often call the Sermon on the Mount. And it is in this sermon that Jesus calls the Christian to live a holy life. I'm going to start with a story that I remember hearing as a child, and I thought it was a great illustration about how we view the Bible. There was a man who was going to go to prison. He was given a life sentence in prison, and uh, much of that time was going to be done in solitary confinement, and he was given a Bible to take with him. So, having more time than activities to keep himself occupied, he made the most of what he had, which included in-depth study of that Bible. The man pored over his Bible hour after hour, day after day, year after year. He just studied that thing front to back. And the guards noticed that he spent a tremendous amount of time studying God's Word, and they were curious what he found so interesting in that Bible. When the man passed away, his cell was cleaned out and empty, and his Bible was found. It was worn and tattered and falling apart. The man had filled the Bible with notes, but not the kind you might expect. Inside the Bible were markings, not of passages that brought comfort or inspired hope to the man. Instead, the notes were like this. The man had noted which verse was the shortest in the Bible, which verses were the longest, what chapter was found in the middle of the Bible, what verse was in the middle of the Bible, what word was in the middle of the Bible, what letter was at the very center of the entire book. He counted them all. What page was at the middle? And what was the shortest chapter? By verses, by words, by letters, What was the longest? He had counted everything he could possibly think he could count in the Bible. The man had compiled notes on the statistics of the printed Bible, but all he saw were exercises in numbers and counting and wordplay. He spent his life reading and studying without encountering God. He missed the point. He missed the message. He missed out on the life that is found in Jesus. In a very sad way, that Bible became an extension of the four walls of the prison cell he was trapped behind. He saw the book only as an object to pass the time, not as a source of life in Christ. Reading God's Word and missing the point? You know, that actually happens more often than we think. It's a common human trait. And today, as we continue through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we encounter a series of statements that Jesus makes about the law that he makes about obedience, that he makes about righteousness. They all follow a formula, and it's a saying that's meant to grab our attention. And the formula goes like this. You'll hear these words in the text over and over. Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Now, Jesus uses that phrase to get our attention, to make us realize that we've been reading the word one way, but we've been misunderstanding it. We've missed the point. And so he gets our attention with that phrase. You're going to hear that over and over. And I want you to listen for that as you hear the word today. Jesus is telling us that we're in danger of missing the point. And missing the point, missing this point is very deadly. 
So the big idea is this. Life is not found in just simple, true obedience of the law. Life is found in Jesus, the fulfillment of the law. And he is pointing that out in our text today. Uh, So let's go to Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 37. It's a bigger passage, but you'll hear that rhythm of, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Beginning in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother and sister has brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle the matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, for your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the, the last penny. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart." If your right eye, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard it, it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven or for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Many preachers, many Bible scholars have read these statements by Jesus and viewed these statements as Jesus replacing the law. That is to say that they think he's sweeping away the old and replacing it with something new, more sophisticated, and something different in the commandments. You've heard it said, do not murder, but I tell you, anyone angry with a brother or sister is subject to judgment. We can all understand that murder is a sin. We can see how atrocious it is. But Jesus seems to ratchet it up and tells us that anger is just as bad and subject to the same judgment. Some read this as some sort of step forward in humanity. We used to think it was enough just to not murder, but now we must rein in our anger. One can see how a person might feel like Jesus' words sweep away the old and institute a new law. And this is especially true for those who feel that God is different in the New Testament as opposed to the Old Testament. Lots of people read the Old Testament and they think of it as describing God as all judgment and all anger and calling for the destruction of sinners. Then they turn to the New Testament and they read about forgiveness and love and salvation. And uh, they feel like, well, God seems different there in the New. 
I contend that we read with a bias. And I think a lot of us actually assume we know what's in the Old Testament and New Testament. We don't really read it. We think that God is different in the old from the new, but he is the same. When you read the whole Bible through and through, yes, you will find judgment in the old and the new. You'll find anger in the old and the new. You'll find love in the old and the new, as well as forgiveness and salvation. They are found in all parts of God's word because God is unchanging. Jesus is not sweeping away the old commands. You know, last week, when we were looking at the text that's just before what we've read today, we read how Jesus proclaims that he's not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He's not getting rid of it. He's not replacing it. So, what's he doing? Well, last week, I talked about how Jesus is fulfilling the law. He's filling in the gaps of what the law cannot do. The law shows us our sin, and Jesus is the salvation from our sin. Now, Jesus dismantles. He's going about dismantling the way that you and I use the law. Specifically, he's discrediting Pharisees and Sadducees, teachers of the law, and their interpretation of the law. He's declaring, you have missed the point. You have heard it said, and if that's all you've heard, then you've understood incorrectly. Jesus' quarrel was not over the law, but its interpretation. And to understand this, we need to understand the Pharisees' approach to the law. They felt obedience to the law was the only way that God could be pleased. And obedience to the law was the only way to righteousness. That's how they understood God's law. The Pharisees and teachers of the law also knew that following the rules was difficult. We're humans. We tend to break the rules. We are more likely to break the rules than uh, keep them. So the Pharisees, especially them, the teachers of the law did this, the Sadducees did this, but especially the Pharisees created a system of rules that served as guardrails to be sure that you were following God's rules. So if we worry about not breaking the guardrails, those rules, they say if we are good at not breaking those ones, we won't even get close to breaking the real laws of God. But something happened with all their complex systems of rules. They were making God's law into something they could manage and control. And here's the problem. When they made up all the extra rules, they made themselves lords over the law. Inadvertently, they took God's place, the way they treated the Sabbath. And I know our text doesn't talk about Sabbath, but Sabbath is a great example God said you are to rest one day of the week. You are to set one day of the week aside as holy. Don't work. The Pharisees and the Jewish people developed hundreds of rules about what it means to rest on a Sabbath day and not work. One of the rules might go like this. Well, it actually does go like this. If a poor person asks for help on the Sabbath, you may give them food if they reach into your window of your home to receive it. But if you extend your arm out of your window to give, well, that's work. That's breaking the Sabbath. So make sure you don't do that. Another one was walking distance. And this is still something that is obeyed today. The The thought was is that one can walk only so far from home before it's considered work. And the Israelites found a place in the Bible where it said they couldn't walk more than 2,000 cubits from home on the Sabbath, three quarters of a mile. 
any longer than that, and it was thought to be works. They said, okay, can't go any farther than that. There is a place in New York City where there's a very Jewish, a devout and Jewish community, and uh, they have determined, they've decided, you know what, It's it, we want to make sure we follow this rule of not walking too far from home, but there's so much we need to do. So they decided as a community to say, synagogue is our home. Not our houses, but the synagogue. And then they took and they measured out a distance, three quarters of a mile, all the way around the synagogue. And they hung up a wire all the way around the synagogue, three quarters of a mile away from it. They got permission from all the other businesses, all the other places in New York City to hang up this wire. And then they said, you know what? We won't be working. We won't be walking too far if we just stay on the inside of that wire. And so they can walk as much as they want. They could walk 20 miles inside that wire, but they've decided that's not work. Instead of resting, they've defined defined the limits of work. They've made it something they can control. And I think we do that too. We put ourselves in charge of the Sabbath. We put ourselves in charge of work. We put our sides, ourselves in charge of so many things. And let me just say this about Sabbath, a confession. I've heard this recently, and I just know it to be true. We pastors, <laughs> we are some of the worst Sabbath keepers. We work on Sundays. And honestly, our work has very few boundaries. We make time for one more visit, one more call, a little bit extra Bible study, a little extra sermon prep. We don't rest well. Because we say, hey, I'm going to do this extra bit of work in the name of the Lord. Another convicting quote about the Sabbath, and this is not a Sabbath sermon, it's just a good example of ways we try to control God's law. But another convicting quote about the Sabbath is this one. God did not say, work hard six days and play hard the seventh. He said, rest on the seventh day. Set it apart as holy. Are you making yourself the master of the Sabbath? Are you setting all the rules for it? Are you letting the Lord be Lord of the Sabbath? But let's go back to Jesus' statements here. The Pharisees were trying to take control of the law. Jesus wasn't changing the law, though. He was intensifying it. He was showing how far we fall short of obeying God's law. In our text today, he takes four big ideas, ideas we thought that probably already were pretty clear, and he amplifies them. I mean, really, the four ideas he talks about is murder and adultery and divorce and keeping your word, oaths, okay? I'm not sure anyone today listening to this message is wondering if murder is okay. I think we all agree that murder is bad. I think we all tend to agree that adultery is wrong, though humanity indulges in adultery more and more. And what can I say? Our culture is very casual about divorce. But those who go through it know more than anyone else the pain that divorce causes, how it tears up our kids, that divorce has a lifelong impact. But we are fast becoming just as casual about divorce as the people of Jesus' day. And yes, they were very casual about divorce. And lastly, there's that phrase about oaths. You probably do not think about oaths on a regular basis, but our culture changes as our culture changes faster and faster. We need truth more than ever, and we need people who will be rock solid in their words and deeds. And Jesus teaches that these laws are not just bare minimums. It's not enough to live life as just simply, well, I didn't kill anybody, and I didn't 
you know, commit adultery and I didn't, you know, these aren't bare minimums. Jesus isn't replacing these. He's intensifying them, saying there's a lot more going on behind these commands than you realize. So instead of murder, Jesus warns against anger. And instead of adultery, Jesus warns against lust and desire. Divorce is intensified by putting a far greater limit on the reasons and consequences of remarriage. Instead of the power of a legal oath, Jesus wants you to take seriously the power of your words. These laws are not bare minimums to check off as accomplishments, but rather they are a call for us to dig deeper. Each law invites you and me to align ourselves with God and His values. Each law is a launching pad for the transformative power of God in your life. I mean, we just take that first one, do not murder. That's a starting point, not the limit. You've not accomplished much in the way of Jesus if you simply do not murder. Jesus intensifies the command, asking that we seek healthy relationships with one another. How do I know we are to have healthy relationships with one another from what Jesus is saying? He says it's not enough to put a polite veneer over top of an angry, dark heart. You can put on a good face and not kill your neighbor or family member, even though you're angry with them, but you can kill the relationship with them. You can harbor bitterness and anger and destroy that relationship with your neighbor, with your family, with yourself, and you can do it with your relationship with God. You might say, well, I never hurt anybody. I never killed anybody. But you destroyed the relationship because you decided to harbor anger. Murder is the minimum, but anger unchecked is just as deadly. Raka, that's a strange word in our text today. That's an Aramaic word for contempt. It actually means fool. And Jesus actually kind of repeats himself. He says, Raka, and then he uses Greek, you fool. That Raka word is feeling a person is worthy of scorn or beneath consideration. You fool, that's a statement of superiority. And once we feel superior to another uh, person, the relationship becomes very unhealthy because it becomes progressively more and more difficult to heal the relationship when you think that person's just too small and too dumb for me to deal with. Winston Churchill said these words, a man is as big as the things that make him angry. I think, (laughs) you know, our times, I know we get angrier easier than we used to as a culture. We get angry over very little things anymore. We're not very big anymore, are we? When Jesus talks about the command, do not murder, he's really talking about our relationship with God. Our relationships with others are a reflection of the health of our relationship with God. That's why Jesus says we're to seek reconciliation with others if we expect our gift at the altar to mean anything. He talks about interrupting your worship. If you're going to the altar to give something to God and you know you have something wrong with the relationship with another person, go and seek reconciliation. Have you ever thought for a moment that maybe your anger with others might be a barometer, a measure of your relationship with God. And I get it. Sometimes relationships are exceedingly difficult. 
maybe very toxic. Maybe you've done everything you can and the other person doesn't want to reconcile. That's a different situation. But to the extent that we are apathetic towards repairing relationships with others, we will lack a healthy relationship with God. Jesus emphasizes our attitudes with others. He emphasizes reconciliation with others and its impact on our relationship with Him. And He also emphasizes reconciling matters face-to-face before an arbiter is brought in. Hmm. So Jesus is intensifying the law. Jesus is saying the law is not, is, is not just... Uh, a bare minimum. But then he also says that the law is not all about behavior. He says it's about relationship. And when you look at all of these things that Jesus just talked about, um, murder and adultery and divorce and oaths, it's all about relationship. I mean, think about it. Do not commit adultery. It's not just about sex. It's about how we treat others. Do you turn a person into an object by the way you look at them? Turning a person into an object destroys the relationship with them. Divorce, that's very similar. I mean, divorce is really about the value of the relationship, isn't it? In ancient times, women had almost no power over divorce except in marital unfaithfulness. Men, however, could issue a certificate of divorce for almost any reason, he did not. If he didn't like the children that she produced for him, he could divorce her. If he didn't like how she kept the home, he could divorce her. If he didn't like her cooking, he could divorce her. Nobody would ask any questions. Jesus highlights how issuing divorce forces sin into the, uh, to the other's life. What he's doing, what he's showing is how relationship is the key to understanding the law. It's not whether or not the divorce is legal. It's about building the healthiest godly relationships possible. Jesus also emphasizes healthy relationships when he's talking about oaths. He says, hey, don't swear an oath at all. Imagine, if you will, for a moment, a world that doesn't need an oath or legally binding contract. Imagine a world so healthy and honest that oaths and contracts are not needed. I mean... Right there, trust and integrity, when you really shine the light on them, they're critical for healthy relationships. And then Jesus, all throughout our text today, is highlighting that failing to uphold the law is costly. But he's also pointing out, when you read the whole Sermon on the Mount, that even though failing to uphold the, uphold the law is costly, that Jesus has paid the price for your sin. He's trying to get us to see how we all really need him. Through each of these, you have heard it said moments. Jesus emphasizes the penalty for failing. I mean, if you just list out, you know, uh, you've heard it said don't murder. If you've heard it said um, don't commit adultery. If you've heard it said don't get divorced. If you've heard it said uh, all, all four of those things, okay, he then highlights the penalty. He says that you'll be subject to judgment. You'll be in dangers of the fires of hell. You have to pay every last penny. Better to lose one part of the body than to go into hell. None of us like to feel the consequences of our actions. I get it. 
I mean, <laughs> we love the Sermon on the Mount. We love the Beatitudes. But do you know how many pastors get nervous reading Jesus's words about divorce right here in the Sermon on the Mount? I mean, <laughs> it's not easy in our day and age because there's so many people who have been divorced. Nobody wants to face how ugly that actually is. And since 2020, in the pandemic, we get nervous about talking about anger because everybody wants to be angry with the other side, the other party, whichever party it is. And our culture in this day and age has normalized lust. Satisfying your desires is valued as the best way to be true to yourself in our culture anymore. So who wants to hear about how bad it is? An unwavering integrity over truth, it's unwelcome in a society where every person is their own truth. Yes and no, our culture wants to say, hey, that's whatever you want it to be. So we live in times it's not easy to read these words, not easy to preach these words. We dislike being told we are wrong. We don't like having our mistakes pointed out. And in truth, pastors, we don't like shaking the hornet's nest. If it was left up to us, we would hide from the consequences. And every, every human on earth would say, hey, let's not think about consequences. Let's just pretend they don't exist. Let's not make them exist. But Jesus is reminding us that failing to uphold the law is costly. We may want to be in control. We may think we want to minimize all the consequences, but we cannot see the whole picture because we're just people. We can only see the present moment. We can only see the here and now. But Jesus sees eternity. He sees the bigger picture. And he realizes we've got to see the consequences because we don't really want to live in them for eternity. Little story here. Quick one. It's about a little pig. The pig ate his fill of acorns under an oak tree. And then he started to root around the tree. And a crow remarked, hey, you should not do this. If you lay bare the roots, the tree will wither and die. And the pig responded, well, let the tree die. Who cares as long as there are acorns? We don't always see the big picture, do we? In today's words of Jesus, they're uncomfortable. And they continue throughout the text. I mean, we're going to read a few more of these in the coming weeks. And they're going to be uncomfortable. Anyone who honestly reads the Sermon on the Mount will be left in a crisis of conscience. We're going to have to, if we, if you honestly read these words, you're going to reach something where you go, uh, I kind of messed up on that one. I fall short there. I, and the consequences are really awful. Is it really going to happen to me? Is it really going to be that bad? Yeah. Jesus shows us the burden of the law. He shows us that we all come up short in it. He shows us that righteousness is crucially important and that we cannot be righteous enough. It's impossible. Jesus is showing us how serious our state is. And he also shows us that restoration becomes our only solution for salvation. And he tells us that he is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus tells us that he is the answer. And that is good news. It's not up to us to figure out how to perfectly follow these commands. We can't do it. It is up to us to decide if we're going to say, yes, Jesus is my Lord. And yes, I believe that he died on the cross for my sins.
I want to share a final scripture passage with you. It comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. It's just a reminder of what Jesus has done for us. It goes like this. It says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork. We're created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Can you call Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Will you take his law seriously? And will you realize that you need his redemption? Let's pray. Grant us, O Lord, the desire to think and do always those things that are right. But you know what, Lord? We know we can't do them. Though we want to try, we want to live a life that is holy for you. We know that we can no, do no good thing apart from you. So, by your Holy Spirit, enable each of us to live according to your will. Help us to obey your commands and to see them as your invitation to a deeper relationship with you and with those around us. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with Jesus.